People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Melvin McFloyd is the editor-in-chief of two of America's leading Buddhist magazines, Buddhaharma, the Practitioner's Quarterly, and Shambhala Sun. And he is also the editorial director of Mindful Magazine. Melvin has edited three books of teachings by Thich Nhat Khan and is a series editor for the Best Buddhist Writing Series. He lives in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and we're so excited to have Melvin with us today. Welcome, Melvin. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So, Melvin, Lion's Roar shares Buddhist wisdom and practices really with the world. You talk about healing and trauma and grief and joy and love and meditation all through a Buddhist lens. And you're a magazine, but you're so much more, really, a platform that includes all kinds of things. So tell us how you landed at Lion's Roar to become the editor-in-chief, and tell us what you do there. Well, uh, telling a very simple version of it, main way in which I became editor of Lion's Roar was by being a Buddhist, which I've been since my early 20s. Went through a fairly typical baby boomer spiritual path up to and including a trip to India in search of my guru, albeit not in the 60s, but in the 80s. At the same time, I was a reporter and producer for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And so those two came together in my becoming the editor of what is now Lion's Roar, which is the leading Buddhist media organization as well as magazine in the English language worldwide. Yeah, it's a beautiful magazine, a beautiful platform. Trisha and I had an opportunity to really dive deep into there. People have often expressed hesitancy because they believe Buddhism is a religion sort of against their own. What do you have to say about that? I would say that Buddhism is a religion. It has all the trappings of a religion, some hierarchies, sort of some disorganized organizations costumes, vast bodies of philosophy, and the things that you would normally define as a religion. So my philosophy on that one is kind of, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably <laughs> a religion. At the same time, of course, Buddhism is the religion without a god, without a deity who is the center of one's spiritual life, to whom one may turn for spiritual realization or achievement. Buddhism is based on working with your own mind. Basically, on one hand, you could say that you have no exterior help like a god, but on the other hand, that means that you have all the power to make your own life and the life of others better. Buddhism is full of really effective techniques of meditation, of practice, very powerful and insightful philosophies. And I think it is very clear that People of any religion can take advantage of those practices and that philosophy or many aspects of that philosophy without in any way violating their own religion. And of course, over the years, there have been many, many particularly Christian contemplatives and mystics. Thomas Merton, of course, comes to mind as the most prominent, who have felt a deep affinity with Buddhism and connection to its basic view and practices. So from a Buddhist point of view, you're very welcome to take anything you want from it up to and including calling yourself a Buddhist or a Christian Buddhist or a Jewish Buddhist, as many people do. If there's an issue that arises, it's from the other end of the equation. Whether your own belief in Judaism or Christianity or Islam allows you to call yourself a Buddhist. And to my view, that usually comes down to what your understanding of God is. If you believe that 
God is a great deity who is consciously controlling the world, your life, and for whom you need to turn for your salvation, that may not be compatible with Buddhism. Or turning it around, Buddhism's denial of such a deity may not be compatible with your own religion. If, on the other hand, your view of God is a more universal sense of love, of openness, of caring, of wisdom, that is the kind of basic ground of the universe, of reality, that could be very compatible with everything in Buddhism. So I think it very much depends on if you're a practitioner of another religion, you're very, very welcome to take as much advantage as you can of what Buddhism has to offer, whether in the end you can be both your religion and call yourself a Buddhist, to my mind, basically depends on what your understanding of God is. So, okay, who is Buddha? So the Buddha was a human being like us, who had all of the same faculties and abilities and in a way problems as we did. He was born into a very luxurious situation as a prince in an Indian principality in northern India. There's much mythology, of course, around him, but the very basics of the story, I think, are both true and relevant. At a certain point in his life of luxury as a young prince, he basically saw that life was imbued with suffering, with birth, with death, with old age, with suffering, with loss. And he was deeply moved to try to address that reality of the suffering of the life of beings. And so he left his life as a prince and went off into the forest and became a wild ascetic and studied with other great yogis within the Hindu and yogic tradition of his day, tried all kinds of ascetic practices, yogic practices, became very adept at them, but in the end found that none of them really, really worked for him. None of them really answered that fundamental question. What is the problem to life's fundamental suffering? And at a certain point, he basically just stopped. He sat down under the Bodhi tree, and the famous milkmaid Sujata came and offered him some sustenance in the form of a bowl of milk rice to take care of himself. He didn't have to punish himself anymore. He could relax and be as he was. And at that moment, shortly afterwards, he had his great enlightenment experience, which was basically to see that we and our world are fine and perfect as we are, and that all of our suffering is actually caused by some misunderstandings of our own nature and the nature of reality and our efforts to fix what does not ultimately have to be fixed. Things are good as they are. We'll solve our problems by just stopping doing the wrong things. He then sat there after having that revelation, that experience, that direct experience of reality of what he as a being and his world really were, that it was all perfect as it was. How do I teach this? He pondered that for, I believe it's traditionally said, seven weeks, and finally realized in a way that he could present what people to start down the path to experience what he had experienced by a combination of teaching basic meditation, of basically awareness and mindfulness, and ethical living. So he formulated what are known as the Four Noble Truths, and this is the basic foundational view and practice and path of Buddhism. It starts where he started as a young prince. Life is imbued with suffering. Even the best of our lives, the richest of us, the most happiest of us, there's always going to be a happiness in the end, of course, we're going to lose it all because there is death. He then identified the cause of that suffering, which is that we fundamentally misunderstand who we really are and what our world really is, and therefore feel like we need to fix something, and in fixing it, only make it worse. 
That's called the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, which in Buddhist terms is generally called ego. We think we're a separate, independent, and permanent being who has to continually defend ourselves, feed ourselves, protect ourselves, fight for ourselves. But we're not separate. We don't have a solid core. We're open, awake, and fluid. Then he said, that's the problem. The third noble truth is there actually is an answer. There actually is an end to suffering. And finally, the fourth noble truth is that path to the end of suffering. It's called the Eightfold Noble Path, but basically it comes down to a combination of meditation, wisdom, and ethical living. So that's who the Buddha was. Do you feel free? <laughs> no, I'm afraid. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I hope that all my years of <laughs> practice and at least study of Buddhist philosophy has helped me be a yeah. bit happier and most importantly, be a better person to help others. But we're all just on the path. So I remain just another struggling, suffering human being. How does the wisdom of Buddhism help us with the world we find ourselves in? Now? Yeah. What Buddhism is about, the first step is not to cause suffering for ourselves and for others. That can transform both our personal lives, our relationships with the immediately around us, and can transform our society. But then you can go a step further, because that's kind of a negative goal. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stop doing the things that cause myself and others suffering. So Buddhist practice is aimed at that. But beyond that, we can go further and we could say, actually, and we go back to the, what the Buddha discovered, who am I really as a human being? Well, who I really am as a human being is actually a being who's imbued with love and awareness and insight, that each of us has compassion and love for other beings. And actually, when we stop covering it over with those various misunderstandings we have, we are deeply wise and insightful. And so beyond simply figuring out ways not to cause problems, we can actually realize that our true nature is basically really positive. So although that sounds like pretty pie in the sky kind of stuff, pretty abstract, in real terms, in the time of pandemic or whatever, that in practical terms, and as you asked about me, most of us, or practically all of us, remain on the path, struggling human beings, doing the best we can. But we can, moment by moment, particularly if we have awareness, we can see the ways in which we are acting in ways that are damaging to ourselves mm. and to others. And we can stop those. And then when we relax a bit and open up, we can start to discover the love and the wisdom right. and the intelligence that is our birthright as human beings. So I think that moment by moment, step by step, struggle by struggle, mm. these techniques and these wisdom, which are, of course, found in all religions, can actually help us on the ground in this society mm -hmm. now. What would you say about acceptance? Can you talk to us about acceptance? From a Buddhist point of view, you've almost hit at what Buddhism defines as the very cause of suffering, which is to say the unwillingness to accept things as they are, or the desire to change things as they are. Yeah, right. So that constantly struggling to want something to be different, to create something new, most importantly, to be a different person than you really are, to want others, your partner, or those close to you to be different than they really are. Relaxing that struggle to fight against reality, as it were. Acceptance doesn't mean you cease to want to change what is troublesome, what is causing problems in life. But you do that skillfully. You don't do that driven by sort of a blind and obsessive desire to fight against reality. So accepting reality 
then you can see its true nature. You can both see that perhaps, as the Buddha did, that really, in the end, ultimately, everything is fine, even though there is birth, death, and old age. They're actually not the problem in and of themselves. It's the struggle against them that causes the problem. Mm -hmm. So the question about acceptance, I think, gets to the very heart of what the Buddha said causes our suffering. You mentioned death. The Buddhist tradition has a unique perspective on death. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's not unique in the sense that it's very much consistent with the belief in rebirth or reincarnation that's found primarily among the world's religions and Hinduism. And this is something that I think is much discussed in the modern Buddhist world, the belief in rebirth or reincarnation. But the Buddha's basic teaching, as far as I can see, is that you try to keep recreating moment by moment the illusion that you have a permanent self, that you're desperately holding on to. Right. That illusory self will keep taking illusory rebirth after rebirth. Some people say, well, you know, it's not like you have a soul, which might be more consistent with what Hinduism says, that is, in fact, reborn lifetime after lifetime. In Buddhism, you'd say, what is reborn is the false belief in the self. Or the false belief in the self drives further rebirths of that false sense of self. Whether you believe that that happens in lifetime after lifetime, that's pretty personal, and I think a lot of contemporary Buddhists look upon that as a form of mythology from the early days of Buddhism. Some believe that it's integral to Buddhism, and others that without it, Buddhism simply becomes a form of secular humanism, but yeah. others say that it's not necessary. What I would say about this is this, though. Regardless of what happens from lifetime to lifetime, Think about what we do moment by moment. Every moment is a kind of moment of change. Change is really just a euphemism for death. <laughs> Am I the same as I was five years ago? Am I the same as I was five hours ago? Am I the same person I was, you know, when we started this conversation? To some extent, yes. To some extent, no. But in every moment, rather than letting that moment go, letting that self go, we are all reborn moment by moment, day after day. And from some point of view, in traditional Buddhism, you would say, and similarly, we are born body after body. But whether we're born body after body, lifetime after lifetime, the one thing we can say is that that false sense of an independent permanent self that we have keeps maintaining itself and keeps giving birth to itself over and over again, in spite of its actual reality as constant change. Oh, like many deaths. Exactly. Yeah. In a way, you want that to happen in this lifetime, right? Before we actually really die. Sometimes they say meditation practice is nothing but practice for death. Because what is meditation practice about? You're obviously both experienced meditators. You see something arise in your mind, right. outside of your mind. What do you do? You don't hold on to it. You let it go. You mm -hmm. let it die. Moment by moment, you die. Moment by moment. You don't hold on to whatever you've just experienced. You let it arise. It may reside for a bit, and it passes away. It mm -hmm. dies. So moment by moment in meditation, in effect, something is dying or something is being let go of. In a sense, that's exactly right. If that's just a rehearsal for what you're going to have to do when your physical body dies. So how would you look at when people get stuck? They'll be like, oh, but geez, I did let that go. My children grew up and I'm no longer a mother. My husband died. I'm no longer a wife. My father died. My mother died. I'm no longer a daughter. How is it different letting go of those roles and actually seeing those being taken away from you? 
it depends what taken away means. I mean, if it's like somebody did something terrible to you, that brings a whole other character in. But I would say that there's no difference in the sense that ultimately nothing can be held on to. The Buddha's basic insight into the nature reality was in the simple statement, all compounded phenomena are impermanent. Everything is always changing. There is nothing permanent. Basically, everything dies. However it is that something arises and something passes an identity, goodness knows my daughter's now grown up and moved away. And I had, you know, all those years of my life having meaning and being a father and that's now changed. And that is a form of death and of letting go. So that's the basic nature reality. Anything that arises passes. I mean, another thing the Buddha said was all meeting ends and parting. And you may meet an experience, you may have an identity, but there's no holding on to it in the end. Mm. Now, that very nature of things being transient may itself be enlightenment. That's the twist. That, that makes just sense. accept and now we're going back to accepting. And then just accept it like that. Accepting it and residing in it. <sighs> and then you start to see its sacredness and its joy. It's the attempt to solidify, hold on to an identity or a pleasure or anything, particularly anything internal, any sense of identity, mm -hmm. and solidify it and try to make it permanent, try to stop it from changing. That's what causes all the suffering. But yeah. actually, I have a constantly evolving series of selves that arise and pass, right. and now there's nice Melvin, and now there's not nice Melvin, right. and moment <laughs> to moment. And, and that very act of constant change may itself, enlightenment may be nothing more than that, or at least accepting it. So this acceptance is such a great training that Buddhism can give us. Is there anything about Buddhism and being a Buddhist that you don't like? Buddhism, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> no, in its essence, in its philosophy, I think of the Four Noble Truths as the world's first and greatest self-help formula in a funny kind of way. Mm -hmm. That the greatest self-help in the world is to recognize you don't have one. At least I thought you did. Know, right. And that many great practices have evolved over those years, and it's produced many great masters or saints. I don't know who is or is not enlightened, but the fact of the matter is that Buddhism, like every other institution in the world, is made up largely of flawed individuals who are, have their problems, who are working on their problems. So the sad truth is that as an institution, as a culture, Buddhism is sadly marked by a lot of the same problems of abuse, of hierarchy, of misogyny, of sexism, of racism, of the worst of all religious sins, nationalism. You know, religious nationalism is where religions really get into problems. You know, and of course, we see the conflation of American identity with Christianity in the reform of religious nationalism. And the sad truth is that in Buddhism, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, Buddhism, the religion, has conflated with a national identity and therefore become poisonous. And any time when a religion is basically subverted to become a form of nationalist identity, that's very destructive. In terms of the human institution of Buddhism, it's a work in progress and it's flawed like every other one to some greater or lesser degree. In terms of the basic philosophy of Buddhism, I don't think there is a more powerful and effective analysis or diagnosis and remedy to the human condition than the Four Noble Truths. Here's the thing. We want to make that feel like ground. And that's not even ground. I want that to be solid. Okay, we've got these Four Noble Truths. We've got those. 
but mm -hmm. they're not, right? That's right. <laughs> this is really sad. <laughs> well, well, that's what I mean. From some point of view, i.e. known as our point of view, <laughs> Buddhism is the worst possible news. <laughs> it's I true. Mean, it's you so don't true. exist. All those things you're trying to hold on to, you can't. You're going to have to let them all go. And not only that, they're causing you suffering. The good news is that Buddhism, for instance, the word renunciation, is not a very fun sounding word, right? I'm gonna have to be a, <laughs> let go of stuff and I'm gonna go sit in a cave or I can't have a nice dinner or whatever. In Buddhism, what you renounce is the causes of your suffering. The trick, of course, is that you don't actually recognize that these things are causing suffering. Like the self, this Melvin McLeod I'm desperately trying to hold on to and maintain for eternity, or even moment to moment. And I don't recognize that that's a cause of suffering, but when I do finally understand that, that's what you renounce. In Buddhism, on one hand, the terrible news is that all the things that I thought were good for me aren't, including <laughs> right. my own basic belief in who I am. <laughs> the good news is that I can have relief from suffering when I realize that those things are, in fact, the causes of suffering. Mm -hmm. So it starts with terrible news from ego's <laughs> point of view. Everything you believe, basically, you got to let go of because right. you're just trying to solidify something that isn't, isn't ultimately solid. solid. Mm -hmm. And can't be. And so it's an endless, endless, eternal struggle because nothing is solid. So you're just going to have to be constantly trying to reinforce it, build it up, keep this sense of myself as an ongoing thing, fed, watered, protected, right. heated pleasure, repel pain. Basically, exhausting. what <laughs> exhausting, exactly right. Buddhism <laughs> basically says, and this gets back to your acceptance, stop struggling. If you stop struggling against reality, then you don't suffer. Can you talk to us about Pema Chodron? We're big fans. Of and I think I mentioned to you before that she and I went to the same boarding school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, Miss Porters, was that what it's called? That's yes. what it, that's yes. what it is. Yeah. And, I wonder um, if Pema went in the basement where you went and got in trouble smoking cigarettes. I don't know. Because <laughs> you said everybody went there, right? Oh, yeah, the butt room. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> that's another story. But we're big fans of Pema. And we loved your special edition that you did on her at Lions oh, Roar. Just beautiful. Yeah. Do you know her? And tell sure. us about her. She was once many years ago my meditation instructor. Wow. And I know her pretty well. She's fantastic. I mean, as a person and as a teacher. And I think that the teaching that she presents is so powerful and to the point and so perfectly suited for this time. And it's something that it comes from her own deep personal experience. So a lot of what we've been talking about here is the letting go, the being willing not to try to hold on or not to try to solidify. The way she puts that in all of her books is when things fall apart, when you face uncertainty, all the different book titles that she has are pointing to that fundamental fear that we have that things will fall apart, that what we've been holding on to, we can't. And we will face fear and uncertainty and groundlessness and lack of solidity. So she makes the same point that I was making before, because it's basic Buddhism. That on one hand, when we are in a situation of things falling apart, that to try to hold them together will cause ourselves to suffer and will probably cause other people to suffer in the process. So that's the negative side of it. If you're not willing to open up to and accept that open, uncertain situation, then you're going to cause yourself and others to suffer. But then the next step is even better. 
that in the mind that is open to that uncertainty, in that very uncertainty, if you have the courage, and much of what she talks about is one needs the strength and courage to simply rest in that open space of uncertainty, of things having fallen apart, then that very mind that you're resting in, that's open to and resting in that uncertainty, is itself the mind of enlightenment. By being willing to stay with the situation when things fall apart, by being willing to rest in that space when things fall apart. That on one hand, you don't then cause yourself another suffering, but in that very moment, you can start to have glimpses of awakened mind. Mm. And she talks about getting hooked. Yes. Shenpa, she calls it. It's a Tibetan word. Mm -hmm. That's right. Over and over again, we we get hooked by something that triggers a memory, a trauma in us, starts us down the path. And, And, you know, if you start to see that in my life, I just keep doing the same things over and over again, mm-hmm. keep getting hooked over and over. If you start to at least see that, then you've got to make a move to catch things right at the beginning when they first arise. That's mm-hmm. one of her messages when it comes to the Shen power being hooked. Once your partner says something to you and it starts the ball rolling, the mental pattern, the hook has caught you. Once you're into it, that's it. <laughs> it's over. You're gonna, you and the partner are going to suffer. So I think what she points to when she talks about being hooked is having the moment of awareness right at the beginning before a pattern really becomes solidified, really starts to take on its own life. You catch it then and be willing to rest then in the open space without going into all that mishigas. So I think she often points to the fact that at that very moment, we can yeah. go down that road or we can not go down that road. Yeah. And using your breath to kind of make that space, right? Mm. Or anything that cuts it. That's right. Can you talk to us a little bit about the secular mindfulness movement? I'm a really great admirer of the secular mindfulness movement and of the brilliance, really, of the way that John Kabat-Zinn, who is a good friend of mine, framed it. Because on one hand, you would say that the basic practice of mindfulness is universal, The ability to concentrate is, in the sense of being mindful, is inherent quality of all human minds. And these practices are found in all religions and spiritual paths. But at the same time, really, it's fair to say that in world history, the mindfulness professionals are Buddhists who have been studying and practicing mindfulness for 2,600 years. And so, albeit that the practice of mindfulness is universal, It is fair to say, I think, that the Buddhists are the world's great experts in mindfulness. However, in our society, a somewhat strange-sounding foreign religion like Buddhism is a bit of an obstacle and doesn't really make things very widely accessible. A foreign religion like Buddhism can be a barrier to all the people who could benefit from mindfulness practice accessing it. So John, I think, particularly starting with mindfulness-based stress reduction, said basically, we're going to look at taking that basic practice and we're going to remove it from the religious or even spiritual context. We're going to look at it as simply a practical way to deal with life's challenges and with our mind and what we experience. We're also not going to use religious antecedents or sources as legitimization for this, but we're going to use science. And then finally, We're going to aim this at the benefits of mindfulness in this lifetime without looking at other lifetimes or other realms or other forms of being. So basically, mindfulness takes the basic practice 
takes it out of the religious contexts, puts it in the context of a scientific framework, which is a form of legitimization in the society, and aims it at practical benefits in this lifetime. And so thus takes this basic, very, very powerful tool of mindfulness practice and makes it accessible to millions of people who would not necessarily be interested in a strange-sounding Asian religion. In addition to which, of course, it also makes the practice acceptable to institutions in a society where the separation of church and state is central. That's a brilliant construct. And of course, it's been tremendously beneficial. And I know a number of people who are deeply involved in the mindfulness movement beyond John. I myself was one of the founders of Mindful Magazine, which mm -hmm. was born from, but now it's called Lion's Roar and is now separate. I think that this is a very, very beneficial and powerful and brilliantly constructed thing. But I'm going to go even further. And I'm going to say something mm -hmm. I think that's really radical mm -hmm. that somebody like John might or might not agree with. But in a way, I think of the secular mindfulness movement as the birth of a truly American Dharma. Notice I mm. use the word Dharma, not capital B Buddhism. So if we think of what the Buddha did, as we discussed earlier, he sat under his tree, the Bodhi tree, for seven weeks, trying to figure out how to get people to start down the path towards what he had realized in his moment of enlightenment. And what he saw was that the way to start was to teach people mindfulness, following their breath, following their footsteps, and ethical living. And from that, over the following millennia, a whole elaborate, powerful religion grew. Buddhism, with philosophies and later schools, and even deeper understandings, but all based on that original insight. Let's get people started by teaching them mindfulness and having them look at ethical living, the two. So to my mind, Buddhism in this society and here in the West is always going to be a bit of an add-on. The Buddhism that came here is the result of the 2,600 years of development that followed the Buddha's life. And it's always going to be a bit of a fringe phenomena because it's a whole elaborate thing imported from another culture. But to me, secular mindfulness is a fresh start of true dharma in American society, starting where the Buddha himself started it, with simple mindfulness and with certain basic insights into reality that are common in both original Buddhism and in mindfulness-based stress reduction. So for instance, if you look at mindfulness-based stress reduction, well, what are the things that mindfulness-based stress reduction teaches you? That pain is going to come, it's going to be present, and it's going to erode. That's called impermanence or change. That there is no solid self that is experiencing that pain, no self. And that indeed, this is not unusual, that pain is a common reality in all of our lives most of the time. That's called the truth of suffering. In Buddhism, those three things are called the three marks of existence. Non-self, impermanence, suffering. Now, in mindfulness-based stress reduction, they're just called very practical ways to help you work with chronic pain. But they're still the same basic reality. They're not capital B Buddhism reality, they're just reality. So to me, mindfulness-based stress reduction, albeit that it's presented, let's put it this way. If Buddhism is accurate in describing reality and some basic truths of reality, Mindfulness-based stress reduction, or the secular mindfulness movement, is also describing those same basic realities. And in doing so, it's making meditation practice accessible and beneficial to millions of people who might not otherwise. But I think even more profoundly, out of it will, over time, 
grow the same deeper and deeper insights that happened after the Buddha first introduced those same practices. So for me, and this is, I say, a very personal and more radical proposition, in the end, I actually believe that the secular mindfulness movement, when we look back 2,000 years from now on it, will be seen as the birth of finally of a truly indigenous dharma in the modern world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Not so radical. (laughs) Very, very cool. Let's put it this way, that I suspect that even if they thought it, that some of the pioneers of the mindfulness movement would want to be seen claiming that, but I can do that. That's true. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. But as I say, John is somebody that I feel a deep sense of connection with and I'm a great admirer of, and I think will be looked upon because of that as an historical Mm -hmm. figure. Thank you, Melvin, for this Buddhism 101 course that we've had today. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. I'm so glad that you had me on. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.